what great truth to be reminded of this morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's wonderful to be with you today, Overlake. My name is Mike. I am a guest speaker here at this church. That's not true, actually. I'm, a, I'm the lead pastor here, joyfully so. Um, I've had an incredible, uh, busy couple of three weeks, and um, it, it's just been a delight, actually. I was down at a church in the L.A. area speaking in August, then I got a chance to go to a, a family camp called Mount Hermon, where I was one of the communicators there, and then just a week ago, I was with my family down in Cannon Beach at the conference center down there, snapped a picture of my three kids jumping off the sand in joyous unity, um, but it only took 67 times to get that photo <laughs> just right. If you want to grab your notes out of your handout, you'll see that we're, we're talking about worship and sharing. And, and the idea is simply that one must come before the other. We, we want to remember at Overlake that we've been challenged to be a family that worships first. And so uh, many of the things that we're going to be talking about, we've actually unpacked in, in multiple contexts over the last couple of years. So, so today will be review for some. It'll be challenge and it'll be, uh, you know, just sort of inspiration, hopefully for all. So the message begins thus, you leak what you love. What you care about, you end up sharing about. What it is that you are crazy for is what you will spill out of your life. And you think about where we spill it. We spill it everywhere. We spill in conversations. We spill on Facebook. We spill in our cubicles at work. We spill on our bumper stickers of our car. We, we spill sort of everywhere. We even spill in the tattoos that we put on ourselves. Found this tattoo, back-to-back -back Super Bowl champion, Seattle Seahawks, this guy, apparently waited until the fourth quarter on the one-yard line and said, yeah, we've got this. Go ahead, do it. Too soon? It'll always be too soon. Okay. All right. So we, we leak what we love, and we learned this when we were just children. When the, the teacher would tell us, hey, it's going to be show and tell day on Friday, and all week long you would look forward to bringing your favorite toy to share or, or smuggle in your pet so that you could show it off, right? Because you couldn't wait to share what it is that you love. The same thing is true with adults. If you can't wait to corner a coworker and show them a couple of dozen, a couple of hundred pictures of your grandchildren, well, then you know your kids have your heart. If you can't wait to get to the office on a Monday morning and gather around the water cooler and unpack the game that happened the day before play by play, you're a lover of sport. And it's just natural what it is that we love, we end up sharing. You, what, you, what you care about, you will share about. And, and if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if Jesus is your King and your friend, then you will inevitably share about his grace and his love, his truth in your world as well. But we have to begin with this concept of worship first. Now, Here's what you might want to write down somewhere in your notes. We've covered this again and again. We'll cover it some more. The idea is that every single person on planet Earth is a worshiper. We are all worshipers. In fact, anthropologists tell us that if you go back to the beginning of recorded history, it doesn't matter where you look. It doesn't matter which tribe, which ancient civilization, you will find as far back as you go, wherever you go, that people, humans, just have it wired in their DNA to worship. And they will create gods and they will make gods and they will worship gods because it's just wired in us to worship. And it's still true today in the American culture. Of course, people might not worship God. They might worship all, all kinds of other things. We end up worshiping power. We worship money. We worship relationships or pleasure or sex. We, we worship all kinds of things. The Bible is really clear that when we're worshiping anything that isn't the one true God, the Bible calls that idolatry. Okay, that's idol worship. And, and what idol worship is, is anytime you give your heart to something else, 
with the thought that as I give my heart here, I will receive life in exchange for it, that this is going to buoy me up or lift me up or I'm going, to be, I'm going to be elevated somehow because of it, well, then that's an idol in your life. Now, followers of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, we seek to receive our life from him. And so we're going to seek to, you know, encourage ourselves in our relationship of love with God. We're going to love him and worship him and make him first and foremost in our lives. The problem is that we often define worship too narrowly. So for some of us, when I talk about worship the first thing that comes to your mind, oh, that's the first three songs in a church service. That's what worship is. Worship is singing a praise chorus. Now, it is those things, but it is so much more. And, and we're going to get into that. We're going to unpack sort of the totality of what worship includes. But the first thing I want you to know is what's important to me, what's important to our Overlake Church family is that we are worshipers first. That that is the first thing that is true about us. That when someone's trying to describe us as a family, as someone looking at you, looking at me, that what they see, oh, you cut them and they, they bleed worship because they are worshipers first. And here's what I mean. If you're filling in the blanks, the first is that worship is first in priority for us. That it is first in priority. It is most important to us. Psalm 65, 1 says, What mighty praise, O God, belongs to you in Zion. Mighty praise belongs to you. That, that, that God is so worthy of praise that it becomes the highest priority of those who follow him. And right here, I just want to remind you that no matter how good our praise is, no matter how mighty our praise is, no matter how long our praise is, and no matter how heartfelt our praise is, that our praise will always fall short of how worthy of praise God is. Does that make sense? So he is so worthy of praise. He is so good, magnificent. He's so powerful. No matter how much praise we offer, we're still going to fall short. God in his grace, obviously, he's, he's so, you know, he makes up the difference somehow. But I just want you to understand it's first in priority, but not only first in priority. It's also first in chronology. Chronologically speaking, in other words, it's our immediate response. Good things happen, yeah, you, you know, things that you like, things that you prefer, things that make your life easier. You come into these con conversations or you come into these circumstances in your life, and we want our first response to good things to be praised. God, thank you for that. Thank you for that conversation. Thank you for that interaction with my boss or my superior. Thank you so much for that tax return check. Thank you, what, you know, whatever it may be, good things happen. You say thank you. You go to praise immediately. What happens when bad things happen? Same thing. You hit a trial. You come up against an obstacle. You hit a brick wall. What should be our first response? We go immediately to the Lord in worship because no matter how big our obstacle is, our God is far bigger. And so we go to praise immediately. What does that do? It reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of who we are. So when good things happen, we worship. When trials come, we worship. How about temptation? When temptation comes, we worship. I want to read you this. This, this is a, what Jesus says. He's quoting an Old Testament verse about worship. But as you get into the context and you see where Jesus is quoting it, you will see that he's quoting it because he is being tempted. And when he's being tempted, what does he do? He points to worship as a way to respond to temptation. Look what he says. Jesus refused, again, backing his refusal with Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and only the Lord your God. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Could you circle the phrase single-heartedness? Single-heartedness, so that we have a united heart as we worship God. Now, friends, don't miss this. If Jesus uses worship as a way to combat temptation, we ought to be free to do the same. Does that make sense? 
So worship is a way, because there are times when you're feeling tempted, the object of your temptation is looking more attractive, it's looking more delicious, it's looking more whatever, and, and the longer you look at it, the more uh, you feel like, you, yeah, that's what I want to pursue. So in the midst of that, turn your heart to worship with single-heartedness, and you will see that that temptation is able to be overcome, okay? And, and what it is is, when you're worshiping, you're reminding yourself of the truth that God is the lifter of your head. He's the remover of your shame. He's the provider, the strength giver, the courage pourer, the universe maker, the molecule holder. And it is right and good and appropriate to make much of him. Look what the scripture says in James 4.8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that's what we want. If we're following Jesus, we're, we're in this relationship with the Lord. We want to draw near to him. The promise is as we draw near, he will draw near to us because he desires intimacy with us. But how do we do that? And the answer is worship. The Bible says we enter into his courts with praise. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving. If you want to know how to get close to God, just remember that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. So as we praise him, understand that the Lord is there coming to us. We draw near to him in worship and he will come near to us. In, G in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And there are many, many things about this chapter that are just outstanding. They're, they're so incredible. But one of the things, she has some confusion, and she asks him a question about worship. Should we worship here on this mountain? Should we worship at the temple in Jerusalem? And what it is, is, is she is expressing a confusion that so many throughout all of history have had. And that is that there is a right place and there is a certain way that, that God demands for us to have access to him. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus, woman, Jesus replied. Now, we don't start paragraphs like that, and, and thank goodness. But I, I do, I, here's what I want you to know. If you were to go into the Greek and see the term that Jesus uses, this is actually, a, it's a term of endearment and affection. This is, he is, he, this is not dismissal. This is, he, he, really, and, and yet, if you don't, like, like, look it up if you don't trust me, and that's fine. You don't have to trust me, but look it up. He, he's, he's literally communicating care to her as he answers her question. Okay. Woman, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And, and this is right, and this is what we've seen throughout all of Scripture, that God has chosen a people, the people of Israel, through whom to birth a son, the son is Jesus, through whom to save the world, Jesus brings salvation for all. So when he says salvation is from the Jews, he, he's, he, that's a real quick snapshot of what the Bible has to say. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, there are many things about this. The, the main thrust of this paragraph is that Jesus is saying God's looking for something deeper than a location. Right? God's looking for an authenticity. He's looking for our hearts, our single-heartedness. He's looking for the spirit, uh, to, our spirit to be responding to the spirit of God, that there, there's this deep level of authenticity. We're not just worshiping with our lips. We're worshiping with all of who we are. So that's, that's the main thrust of that paragraph. But what Jesus also does is really revolutionary. He says, you don't have to worship God on this mountain, and you don't have to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. And that's, that's powerful. Because even today, we think, oh, we gather together in a house like this, and we're thankful for this house, and we praise God in this house, but, but none of us think that this is the only place where we could praise God. Right? And we're thankful for this house, and I'm, I want you to hear me. I'm grateful we can all gather together, but this is not the only place we worship God. We can worship him all the time, any day, any place. And so 
So what Jesus is saying is really revolutionary because in the ancient world, God, worshiping God, was closely associated with geography. God was the God of Israel. There were places that you had to go, holy places, where you had to pilgrimage to. And this is actually true in, in all sorts of cultural context in the ancient world. It's funny because I have been to many of these holy places. I've, I've traveled a lot around the world. I've, I've sort of gone to some of these holy places that people still make pilgrimages to. And what's interesting, if you've ever had the chance to do this, so often what you will find in this holy place is that people have stopped worshiping the God and have begun to worship this place. And it's become idolatry. Their heart has subtly shifted and, and they have gone to this place to experience some phenomenon, but it's all about the place that they've gone to and it ceased to be about God who made the place. And so you just have to see that, that this is a, heavily a part of the ancient world, still a part of our world today. And Jesus is... is the temple that Solomon built, it was so magnificent and it was so beautiful there in Jerusalem. It was so huge, one of the wonders of the ancient world that pil pilgrims, travelers would come to this place and they would be in awe. It was just massive and huge and, and they, would, oh, of course, they would be in awe and wonder, oh my, this has to be the home of the one true God. And you could see how close it would be to shift from worshiping God to thinking that this place was somehow magical and the only place where God dwelt. And so you might be familiar with this scripture. It says in Psalm 26, 8, Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. And of course that verse is true, that, that uh, God is present in the house. Glory is uh, present there in the temple in Jerusalem, but not only there. And I would tell you that the, the ancient Israelites, the, the Jewish community, had come to view this verse literally, thinking that this was the only place that, that worshipers could access God. And, and there was carefully coded uh, rules and, and rituals so that someone you know, had to go through these priests in order to have their sacrifice offered and their sins forgiven. It was very structured and mechanical and and I just want you to understand what Jesus is saying is so revolutionary to this woman. You don't have to go through all that. You don't have to go to that temple. What, what, what God really wants is this. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. Okay. Now, what I want you to understand is that God desires followers to enter into his presence with all of ourselves, with our single-heartedness, being authentically his, and with a dose of humility, appropriate humility. And, and I say this, it's, it's important for us to realize this. I don't have a mean spirit about this. I don't have a mean bone in my body on this one because I'm preaching myself so often. But listen, it's impossible to make much of God if you're busy making much of yourself. So we've got to come with that attitude of humility. I also say this, you need to understand, the problem with acting like a God in this life is that you're going to stand face to face with the real one in the next life. And so it's really important for us to kind of get that, that we come with appropriate humility, this authenticity as we worship. And what I want to do is unpack some of the biblical constructs of worship. We're going to unpack Hebrew words today, seven Hebrew words. And again, for some of you, this will be review. For others of you, you just need, I know you came to church today dying to learn some Hebrew. So here it is. We're going to unpack some Hebrew words. The first word, seven biblical descriptions of worship. The first word is the word yada. Yada. It means to praise with lifted hands. Yada. And this is found in Psalm 42, 5, 2 Chronicles 7. In 2 Chronicles 7, at the dedication of the temple, uh, when Solomon is having the temple dedicated to the Lord, you can imagine the Levites blowing all of the trumpets, calling everyone to worship, and they would come in with their hands extended, their arms raised in praise to God. Yada. And just a note of clarity, I don't, I don't speak modern Hebrew, and I don't speak ancient Hebrew. My, my Hebrew is more drunken Hebrew. 
Uh, and so if you're a scholar and you know exactly how this thing is pronounced, you can uh, feel free to keep that to yourself. Um, <laughs> yada. Now, when I'm talking about praising with lifted hands, what it might be helpful for you to think about is a small child lifting their hands to a mom or a dad, say, saying, hold me, pick me up, God, wrap me in your arms of love, because that's a part of the heart that we want to go to when we lift our hands to the Lord. Another context that you might want to go after is, you know, way back in the day when I was a child and we used to play cops and robbers, you know, uh, one of the things that would happen inevitably in our neighborhood is if we were the robber, we would pretend to have a gun. We'd say, stick them up and you'd have to stick them up. You know, I'm not going to fight you. Or if you were the cop, the same thing. You'd say, you know, freeze. And, and the robber would say, okay, I'm frozen. And, and the idea is when, when you raise your hands, you're, you're communicating, I'm not going to fight you. I, I'm, I'm not going to resist. I surrender before you. And so when you raise your hands before the Lord in worship, what you're saying is, is I'm yours. I, I'm not going to rebel against you. I, I'm not, I'm not going to fight under your authority. I, I submit myself to you. Okay, yada. All right, next description, toda, this is to show agreement by extending the right hand. Again, these are biblical descriptions of worship in the Hebrew. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are seven primary ways. Toda, to show agreement by extending the right hand. We see this in Psalm 50, 23, and other places. And the idea behind it in the Hebrew was to agree with. You're showing agreement with as you extend your right hand. Now, in our culture today, we still do this. We do this by extending your right hand and shaking someone's hand. This is, you shake someone's hand, you seal a pact. What you're saying is, we are in agreement on this. We are unified in this. Whatever we're shaking over, this is, we're in, we're in unity here. And so when you're praising the Lord, you could extend your hand and, and be saying to the Lord in your heart by your language, I'm in agreement with you, God. I, I am with you. I, I know you are with me. We are together in this journey. And, and so you're in agreement with him. Uh, th there's also a celebration kind of an attitude in this where you're just celebrating, lifting your hand and just enjoying the moment of praise with the Lord. And I, and I say all this, and I realize that as I'm talking about these first two, one raising your hands, the other, you know, in agreement with the Lord, some of you are thinking, that's just weird. I, 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 I'm thinking the entire summer that I just lived, I, I went every day of this summer, you know, I never lifted my hands naturally one time. It's just not a natural posture that I have, unless I was, you know, getting an apple off a tree. I, I was, I, I never lifted my hands, and, and I get it. I, for some of us, it's just a little bit, it's, it's outside the realm of normal, okay. But let me challenge your thinking just a little bit. A few years ago, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to a concert of um, a, a rock band, U2, the, the world's greatest rock band, and, and the entire catalog, of course, on God's iPod. Uh, and, and, and so I was down at the Key Arena. I, I got my tickets laid, so I was in the second to highest row. It literally, like the ceiling was right here, kind of. And, but from that vantage point, I could see the entire arena below me. What was interesting is it was an incredible show, as they all are. And uh, after the encore, when U2 had come out and was doing their encore set, the crowd, everybody, everybody was just going nuts in there. But they played a final song. Their final song that night was a song called Yahweh, which is, again, Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word for the name of, of God, our Lord. And many people don't know that, but it's, it's, a, it's a song to him. And and, and a lot of people know the lyrics. And so as they were singing the song Yahweh, I looked at 20,000 people with their hands raised. Now, nobody distributed literature before the show 
hey, guys, listen, when Yahweh comes on, I want you to raise your hand, you know. Like, nobody, it wasn't like, you know, hey, pass it on. When the encore comes, I I want to make sure everybody, you know, get everyone around you. Raise your hands. Come on, raise. Like, it wasn't something that, that, hey, you need to be a part. No, it was somehow, and I don't, I'm not trying to describe it to you or, or tell you why this happened. I'm just telling you what happened, that it was the most natural thing in the world to just raise your hands and to participate in a reality that's far greater than you. To understand that, that hey, I, I'm in the midst of something that is, that is beautiful and something that's powerful, and I want to be a part of it. And how I'm a part of it is by raising my hand. And if we can do that at a concert, my challenge, let's do that for the Lord. Okay. All right, that's the second one. Toda. Third, Barak. Barak, to kneel down. Psalm 95.6, Psalm 103, again, many other places. Bowing low as a sign of adoration and reverence. It carries with it the idea of humbling yourself to a place that is lower than the recipient of your worship, which is the Lord. And this is, by far, I think, the most uncomfortable, physically, thing to do. The idea of bowing down or kneeling down. It's uncomfortable to do if you're in a public setting, like this one, corporate worship. It's uncomfortable to do just our, our bodies, especially as we age, you know, knees and joints are creaking. It's, it's uncomfortable. But I would just say this. In, in sort of antiquity, whenever regular people, whenever normal folk, common folk, would come into the presence of royalty, what would they do? They would kneel. They would bow down. And as uh, they would bow down as a sign that I am humbling myself before you and I am making much of you. And, and so the challenge then in, in this context is as we worship the Lord, we're worshiping God through prayer, we're worshiping God through singing, but this is an appropriate thing for us. Again, our physical state is reminding us of the spiritual reality. We're humbling ourselves before God and we are lifting him high. We're adoring him. Number four, tahiya, and that means to praise through singing. Psalm 22, 3, Psalm 33, 1, uh, and, and many other places. Tahiya, to praise him through singing. And, and obviously we do this with great regularity in many cultural contexts, followers of Jesus, that, that we incorporate singing and praise songs into our, our services. But this word actually refers to a different kind of singing. So you might want to make a note. This actually refers to spontaneous singing that bubbles out of your overflow of your heart. That it just comes out. And so and not being pre-rehearsed, not being, you know, uh, written down. It's just this joy of, of how you love God and it just bubbles out of you. Now, I would tell you, I find this the most difficult way to worship. So I, I, I'm not much of a singer, and, and when I do sing, I like to know the words in advance. And, and, and so this has been a challenge for me. But over the years, a, a few times, I, I challenge myself to, privately, it's always privately. I, I challenge myself to just, as I'm, as I'm with God and, I, and, and I'm just maybe thinking or praying to him, I'll just tr- try it every once in a while. And one day, this was a couple years ago now, I'm driving into Overlake, and I'm thinking about this, and... And so I just, well, Lord, I, this might be a little weird, but I, I'm, I'm just going to try this, you know. And, and so I just kind of, I, I, I just, I love you, Lord, you know, like just let it come out. No, that didn't sound really good. I'm sorry. And, and, uh, and, and I kept going, oh, Jesus, you, you know, you're my king. And, and like I, I'm just trying it, you know, and like I'm always, I'm just always, so I'm self-conscious. It's just me in the car, self-conscious. And. But I realize I'm at a stoplight. I look over, and the two people that are, they're looking at me. And, and I could tell. They were like, do you have spiritual Tourette's or something? Like, is something wrong with you? Actually, a nurse came up to me after the first service and said, if I saw someone doing that, I would, I would think something was wrong. Okay, so make sure you do it privately if you do it. But I just want you to understand that it's, it's okay for us just to be caught up in a moment of love with the Lord, that in that moment, you don't have to cycle through the encyclopedia of songs that you know. 
You, you don't have to sort of go back through the list of creeds or what are the prayers that you've always prayed. That, that in that moment, you can express your love spontaneously to the Lord. That is a biblical form of worship. Next, number five, Zamar, to celebrate with music. Psalm 150 is a good example of that. And basically, it's the most common form of praise we have across the world in our churches. It's, it's not the songs as far as the lyrics are concerned or the content of the words of songs. It actually is referring to the instruments themselves. So many of you are musicians. You need to understand that just picking up your instrument and going for it is a way that you can praise the Lord. I want to also tell you this, because you probably never thought of it before. Your hands, as they clap together, that is an instrument. You're making a joyful noise before the Lord. So sometimes when we finish a, a worship song here at Overlake, everybody starts clapping and, and kind of, you know, cheering. And whatever. I just want you to understand, that's not a moment of saying to the band, hey, you guys sounded good on that. What it is, is it's an extenuation of worship. We've just worshiped the Lord through this song, and now we're going to continue to worship the Lord through Zamar. Okay? You're, you're making that noise to the Lord as an extenuation of your praise. Number six, halal is to be clamorously foolish before the Lord. Halal. We see this in 1 Chronicles 16.4, Nehemiah 12.24. Guys, this is the most fun form of worship because it requires us to step outside of dignity. This requires us to shine in the radiance of the Lord and to boast in the one true God. This is the kind of praise that David exhibited when he, King David, when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the, the Jerusalem. It, it had been in exile, technically, and, and, and so he was bringing it into Jerusalem, and, and he was leading the procession. He was dancing with all of his might, if you remember, before the Lord, and he had stripped himself down to his holy boxer shorts, this, this uh, sort of undergarment that priests wore called the ephod, and uh, more Hebrew than you ever wanted to know, but... He's, he's, just, he's just undignified before the Lord. He's clamorously foolish in his dancing and his praising, and he gets criticized for it, if you remember. His wife, Michal, is watching from a window, and afterwards she scolds him. Oh, how you have disrespected yourself today in front of all of Israel. And David says what? I will be even more undignified than this if I can make much of my God. And then he says, and the, and the people of Israel, you don't worry about them. They will worship God, too, because of it. And they do. So yeah, I just want you to see that, that he said, ah, I don't have to remain stuffed in my dignity when it comes to worshiping God. I can forget about what other people are thinking, what other people are doing. I can bring all of who I am and worship the Lord. I can be clamorously foolish. I say all this because in the last 200 years in America, it seems to me that American culture has made worship very stuffy. If you just think about the last 200 years, it was all about hardback pews. Even the word pew. It just, and, and, and just, you know, you're dignified, straight-backed, and, and straight-laced, and you've got the psalter, and you, you're just singing, and, and you smack the child who's not in line. and it, It's just dignified and proper and da and it's so opposite of halal. Halal, by the way, is used over a hundred times in scripture. So this is often, it's not like once, it's like all over the place. And it makes me think, I wonder how your relationship with God is. How do you view him? How do you view your, is he this distant, displeased, perpetually scowling father who's unpleasable? Always looking down his nose askance at you, waiting for you to step out of line so he can. Or is he the God who invented fun? Is he the God who invited you into this relationship of love? See, I, I don't know what your relationship is like, but I, I, I would tell you the story. Again, this, this whole today, all of it's, it's going to be repeat for a few of you, but. 
I used to do youth ministry. For 12 years of my life, I did youth ministry. I love student ministries. I love students. They're so incredible, so passionate. I love it. While I was doing youth ministry, we would do these things called all-nighters. And all-nighter, it was a night where you'd get no sleep. Students would have a ton of fun. You'd do all these crazy games, activities, all this fun stuff. You'd get no sleep. You'd be exhausted. And it would take me days, weeks, even months, years to recover. So... I, 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 for the last 13, 14 years, I've, I've not been doing student ministry. So now, I just turned 45 this year, I have a different definition of all-nighter. For me, an all-nighter is one in which I go to bed in the evening and I wake up in the morning and I didn't have to get up in the middle to go to the bathroom. That's an all-nighter. And I pulled one last night. So that's all preface to say one night, a couple years ago, I, I, doing my normal routine, I wake up in the middle of the night, I, I, have, I have to use the restroom, so I get up, I kind of shuffle, stumble in there, and I don't even really open my eyes, I just kind of feel my way and don't turn on any lights, just, you know, I'm just going to do what I need to do, go back to bed, and, and, and so I get in there, and as I start to do my business, I realize instantly something's horribly wrong. It's just splatter everywhere. Like, I'm like, what? Ah, turn the light on. My son Caleb had saran wrapped the toilet bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he got me. He totally got me. That was, that was good. He caught me napping. So I, I clean up, you know, I go back to bed. Wake up in the morning, I, I kind of didn't even remember it. I, I go, you know, I have a, my closet, I got my slippers right there. I go to put my feet in. I just, you just shove your feet in slippers. Only good slippers, shove them in. I shove my feet in the slippers. He had put squished banana in the toes. I got banana under my toenails. I'm like, oh, oh, that punk. Oh, so I, I go into his room. I jump on his bed. I'm just giving it, you punk, you got me twice, man. It's like, what are you talking about, dad? You know? And he's like, oh, man, your breath stinks. You really, you got to go brush your teeth. But my antenna's up. So I go in the bathroom, and sure enough, he had taken Tabasco sauce and put it on my toothbrush, Tabasco sauce and my toothpaste. I'm like, it's on. So that day, I'm at, the, I'm at the store, I'm buying, you know, fresh toothpaste, Colgate, original, best kind. I, I'm buying my, uh, my, my toothbrush, and the wheels are going, and I, oh, I, I got an idea. So I, I grab some Oreos, and the next morning, I'm making the kids' lunches. Often make the kids' lunches, and so, so I make a big deal about the Oreos because we don't often do cookies in the lunch. So I'm like, hey, Dad, got you a treat, got Oreos, so I'm making all three kids, getting, getting Oreos. But it was all sleight of hand. It was just a, just a parlor trick because I had made Caleb his special Oreos. <laughs> I had taken the cookie apart, scraped the white frosting out, filled in with Colgate, <laughs> put it back together. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> He, he came back from school that day, and he's like, Dad, you totally got me, man. He goes, I was with my buddies. I was like, yeah, my dad got me some Oreos. Oh, what is this? That story only loosely relates to halal. <laughs> Maybe the point is, if you punk God, he will punk you back. I, I don't know. But the idea is, if this is a word that is used again and again in Scripture, a hundred times. By the way, halal is the root word for the word hallelujah, which is used far more than a hundred times. So I, I want you to see that this is a part of what God desires for us and from us as we celebrate the God who invented fun by being clamorously foolish in his presence. And then the last word here, shabak, means to address in a loud tone. You could even write the word, thank you. You could even write, <laughs> write down the word loudest tone, right? Because the idea is this. We see it in Psalm 63, 3 and 4. It's a loudest tone. And Walt Whitman in his poetry calls this a barbaric yawp. 
And King David in his Psalms calls this a festal shout. But the heart behind it is giving everything you've got as you express praise mightily to the God who is mightily deserving of it. So, so it's an attitude of that single-hearted, wholehearted worship. You're, you're just pouring everything you have into your praise. And it could involve all the other kinds of praise, but what's most important is that it's, it's taking everything you've got, all of your strength and all of your energy, all your volume is, is being given up to it. Now, in our culture today, the only places that we do see this, this kind of exhausting praise, where you're just exhausted after it, is at sporting events. And, and, and your team miraculously wins the game or scores the goal or whatever. And in the moment of, of the score, in, in the instant of the victory, the entire stadium erupts. And everybody's dancing and everybody's shouting and everybody's hands are in the air and everybody's just giving it all they've got. And again, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My, my challenge is if we can do it for the team and if we can do it for the band, how come we're not ready to do it for our Lord? And why do we suddenly put on the dignity? Why, why do we suddenly stuff it in a box? The idea is that there's so much freedom in all of this. And, and again, these are not all of the biblical ways. These are seven primary biblical ways used to describe worship. But, but even bigger than doing these seven things on a Sunday, you need to understand, because I told you this, worship is bigger even than that. So anytime you are trying to make much of God, anytime you are trying to adore him, you're trying to, to humble yourself and to lift him and you're expressing devotion or gratitude towards the Lord. And, and anywhere you're doing these things, and you could do it through you know, being on a nature hike or, or being you know, surfing at the beach or whatever it is, you, or with people. You could, you could praise as you're with your family and you're, you're talking about how amazing God is and that's a moment that you begin to express. Or you could do it as you're serving and you're pouring out because you want to bring God's glory into this corner of the world and so you're bringing it all and, and you hope that, that this is something that blesses people and you're doing it because of your love for God. That's a, a form of worship. So it, worship is bigger, 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 right? It's huge. And, and that's why it was so appropriate for Jesus to tell the woman, look, a time is coming. It's now come. You don't have to worship on this mountain, and you don't have to worship on that mountain in Jerusalem, but God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This, all of who they are, single-heartedness, authentically, not caring what other people around them are doing or thinking, what the cultural milieu is, but they want to worship God. You know, Paul put it like this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you could circle a word, I, I would have you circle the words living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Anytime we're expressing love and adoration for God, we're worshiping. Anytime we want to bring him glory with our lives, we're worshiping. Anytime we humble ourselves to make much of him, we're worshiping. And we need to worship, and we need to worship first. And as we worship first, friends, as we live a life in relationship of love with the Lord of the universe who loves us and has loved us first, then we begin to leak what we love. So we begin to spill it out. It, it, it inevitably just sort of oozes out of our pores. The, the folks will see, oh, look at their joy. When, when good things happen, they're joyful. When, when tough things happen, they're joyful. Even when they personally feel like they're walking a hard road, they are joyful. What is going on? They're, they're leaking something. What is it? And I just want you to know, people are watching your life. 
People are listening to your words. People care about the life that you're living in, and they want to know what is it that makes you tick, and they're, they're watching how you interact. They're watching how you treat your family. You know how I know this? Because you'll run into someone you haven't seen in five years, and they know all about you because they've been stalking you on Facebook. <laughs> it just happens. It, it, people are watching, people in your classroom, people at, at your work, people in your neighborhood, they're looking at your life, and, and they're interpreting something about you about what's important to you, about what you love, by what you leak. And so that's why we have to be worshipers first. Final point, you never know who's listening. You never know who's watching. You never know who's paying attention to you. And I'll close with this story. A couple years ago, I threw out my jaw at the melting pot. Now, are you familiar with the melting pot, anybody? The, the, this restaurant has nothing to do with the recent marijuana legislation. <laughs> the melting pot is a restaurant where you pay an incredible amount of money to cook your own food. They, they bring you all sorts of raw vegetables and raw meats, and they've got the fondue cookers in the middle, and, and you're cooking all the stuff, dipping the bread and the cheese, you dip the bread and the cheese, and, and, it, it all, it's, and then there's these sauces everywhere, and, and the final course is chocolate. So you tumble out of that restaurant with an empty wallet right into a diabetic coma. It's a great date night. And I'm there with my family, and... and you know, we're getting all set up, and the waitress has brought out all of these sauces. And she's telling us which sauces taste best with, you know, the, these taste best with the, the breads, and these with the veggies, and, and this one with the chicken. And, and then she said, and the angry sauce tastes best with the lobster. And I looked at it. It did not look angry to me. Uh, it looked like cocktail sauce. And, and as she's described, she said, oh, watch out. It's a little spicy. And, and, and it tastes best with the lobster. So a little bit later, I'm cooking my lobster, and, and I'm like, oh, i got to check this out. It, it does not look angry. And so I, I dip it into the angry sauce, and, and, and I pop it steaming into my mouth. Now, she, it, it looked like cocktail sauce, and it was one part cocktail sauce, four parts horseradish, five parts rocket fuel. <laughs> she said it was angry, but that was an understatement. That sauce was furious. And I pop it steaming in my mouth, and it hits my tongue, howls up my nose. I jerk my head to the right and threw my jaw out of whack. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. The whole rest of the meal, I, uh, uh. That's not the interesting part. Six months later, I'm with my family down in California. We're with my sister's family at a public pool, and I'm telling my sister that story. And about halfway through, we both sort of pause and turn. There are six adults sitting on the side of the pool, listening intently. And one lady leans forward and says, well, go on. How does it end? <laughs> I was so self-conscious because I was wearing a Speedo. No, 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 I'm just kidding. It was a thong. No, no, it wasn't. No, that's, that's bad. That's, wipe that. The point is, you never know who's listening to your story. You never know who's watching your life. You never know what people are taking away from an interaction with you. You don't realize how interaction after interaction after interaction builds a narrative. That narrative becomes a truth that somebody else carries with them from you. And what they're taking from you is they're, they're taking what your favorite sports team is. They're taking who your family members are, they're taking, uh, you know, what are the other important things in your life, what kind of car you like the best, and, and what kind of clothing brand you love, or whatever. They're, 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 they're gathering all of this information about you because you leak what you love. My challenge, friends, is that we're lovers of Jesus. My challenge is that we're worshipers first because Jesus is the one who has created us in love. 
Jesus is the one who has pursued us in love. Jesus is the one who has come to the cross and he says, give me all of your guilt and all of your sin and all of your shame. Every time you've hurt yourself, every time you've hurt someone else, every time you've done anything that you cannot believe you've done, like how stupid could you be? I will take that from you. And in its place, I will give you my grace. And I will cover you in forgiveness and I will give you my righteousness. And you can walk away clean and whole and in this relationship of love that starts now and lasts forever. And that's why we love Jesus. And that's why we follow Jesus. And that's why we worship Jesus and make much of Jesus and elevate Jesus and lift Jesus because Jesus alone is worthy of our highest praise. And so friends, let's make much of him. Let's worship him first, first in priority, first in chronology, because we want to leak what we love. What you care about, that's what you share about. All right, so let's make much of him right now. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. And Jesus, the truest thing I've said today is no matter how much we worship you, there's more there's more to worship. No matter how much we make of you, there's more to make. No matter how high we exalt you, you are higher still. And Jesus, we trust that you make up the difference. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your lavish love, your affection for us. Thank you for your delight in us, your love over us, even when we're unlovable. We come to you now and we just declare that we want to be yours. We want to be intimate with you. We want to draw close to you. And so we're gonna worship you. We're gonna worship you now. We're gonna worship you with our lives. We're gonna worship you first because we want to leak what we love. And Jesus, we declare right now, we love you. We pray all of this in your precious name, amen.